analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day here in Kamloops. Blue skies, sunshine, and absolutely none of the associated warmth. It is cold out there. So we'll warm you up with some good talk uh, for the next hour or so. Lots on the show. We'll talk about uh, transparency at the legislature. Some major movement on that front yesterday. Sean Holman will join us. We'll also talk about ride sharing with the uh, Federal Competition Bureau's Associate Deputy Commissioner of Competition, Layla Wright. And we'll also talk about community health centers. What are those? We'll dive into that a little later on the show. But we start off, as we always do on Wednesday, with our weekly uh, catch-up on the civic pol political scene with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. It's fresh out there. Yeah, it certainly is. It is cold as hell out there is what it is. My God. Uh, okay, so uh, Kamloops Council meeting last night. Uh, why don't we start there? Um, you're starting to turn your attention now to the supplemental budget list, a uh, list of 13 projects on there. Um, off the top, asset management, you were telling me, is, is the big one, the key one. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this for some time, as have other municipalities. This is uh, really where we need to be. We have been entrusted with billions of dollars in, in public assets, and we yeah. need to have a plan to maintain them. And uh, so this uh, proposal that we had yesterday is uh, about a half a percentage point in terms of your tax increase, $550,000 per year over the next 10 years. Uh, and uh, we would be able to uh, amass a fund that would help us to start to do things like the fixes and the pools and the road repair and that in a more uh, expeditious manner. So um, do you anticipate a problem there when it comes to councils kind of voting item by item, or do you think that that's something everybody's on board with? Then? Well, you know, I, I sensed yesterday that there was uh, general uh, acceptance about it. I mean, nobody likes that kind of an increase, but it is responsible governance. And yeah. I think uh, councillors recognize that, uh, you know, this stuff doesn't fix itself, and it has a finite lifespan, just like anything else. So we have to do that. Uh, these are primarily buildings and roads, but we will have to look at this with in our utilities for uh, both sanitary sewer and our water system as well. Uh, you're looking at alternate funding for the Stuart Wood Cultural Center, Kamloops Fire and Rescue's Training Center, and the RCMP Protective Services Training Building. What's going on there? So uh, with the Stuart Wood Project, and, and we've spoken about that on your program a number of times, yeah. but uh, we need uh, a couple of hundred thousand to get this off the ground in terms of planning. So we've uh, done some preliminary work uh, with the uh, Kamloops to Shukwapmek, and uh, we have, I think, a very willing and capable partner there. And we need to get this project kind of shelf ready so we want to have something that we can put in front of Heritage Canada so that uh, we'll be in line for grants and I expect federal grants may be uh, uh, coming uh, out this year as a result of the federal election so we want to be uh, prepared for that uh, this is a $200,000 ask that we would engage a consultant to uh, put the finishing touches on the plan. Uh, with respect to the Camels Fire Training Center uh, we moved that building to a accommodate the BC Hydro substation up on McGill and uh, when we moved it we we didn't get like for like we got uh, you know uh, rid of uh, a fire center that was really an old fire center using old technologies we've half built a new one and so we need to finish that project off and there is uh, you know the potential that uh, we will be able to help uh, assist uh, training volunteer firefighters around the Thompson Nicola Regional District once we get that uh, fully up and running and uh, with respect to 
to the RCMP ask, uh, we need to uh, have a place for particularly firearms training. Uh, right now, uh, RCMP, uh, sheriffs, uh, conservation officers, that kind of thing, are having to avail themselves of the uh, target uh, range in Chilliwack at the old uh, armed forces base there. It's expensive to send people away for that, and uh, we think we should be able to accommodate that here in Kamloops. Okay. Uh, out of the list of 13, what do you see as something potentially that could fall off, or do you think it's going to be 13 for 13? Uh, you know, the, probably the, the lower ones, the, the information kiosks around town, there was a lot of people saying, hey, you can see all of the highlights downtown from <laughs> any one spot. Why do we need an information kiosk? Uh, but, you know, I think we have to uh, look at that. It's a very small ask there. Uh, there was a lot of controversy with respect to boat launch upgrades and, and uh, that, and there constantly is uh, uh, a concern about parking, so the Sing Street parking was something that uh, there was a lot of concern about. On the other side, there was a lot of support for active transportation, and in fact, uh, there was discussion about increasing the ask rather than uh, accepting what staff had put in front of us. So things like sidewalk expansion and uh, some of the active transportation trail networks that we have in place. Um, uh, one interesting situation that's, uh, that I find with uh, with the city of Kamloops, and I remember when my wife and I were looking for property, uh, we were looking at a number of houses before we decided on the one we have, um, Almost everything we looked at had an illegal suite in it, and I know secondary suites is something the city is looking at very intently right now. What's your take on this? Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with this problem? Because everyone's got them pretty much. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things. We had a, a meeting last night. Unfortunately, I couldn't attend, but it was well attended, and uh, you know, there's really two sides to that. One is that uh, if you uh, just open it up wide open and had everybody with the potential of a, a secondary suite in their home, you would uh, help the uh, affordable housing situation, particularly helping students and those looking for rental accommodations. The other side of that is that it can be disruptive in neighborhoods. And so, uh, you know, you have uh, situations like cul-de-sacs and places like that where the additional vehicles would have to be accommodated on the roadway and there isn't enough room there to begin with. So you have that kind of yin and yang uh, between neighborhoods. Uh, so, you know, the suggestion is that we look at certain parts of the city where that might be something that we would look at. And as you point out, there are an awful lot of illegal suites out there so the potential of uh, just opening it up means that they would be assessed and that they would be taxed and that we would have the ability to look at uh, fire protection particularly in those yeah. in those suites do you how do you tackle that i mean there's a lot of them do you do you issue some kind of blanket um i don't know uh, exemption giving them like a two-year window or a year window or something to say okay you have this chance to bring it up to code and then we'll just bring you into the system without any uh, without any punishments, that kind of thing. Is that how you go about it? Or no? that, that's generally how it's done, and, and these are kind of a phased-in sort of approach. Uh, you, you would register your suite over a period of time and, and make sure that you had all the amenities for it. You know, I think, uh, you know, people want to be responsible when they are renting, and, uh, you know, uh, it's just a fact of uh, making sure that this isn't a big hit on them in terms of electrical upgrades or, or some of those kinds of things. So uh, I think, uh, you know, there are parts of the city that that would make sense uh, and there's probably other parts of the city that don't want that intrusion in their neighborhood and this is what we're doing right now we have that uh, uh, meeting last night and then we'll get a report on that as well as our let's talk website where we talk about that and we're uh, soliciting feedback from the public on that as well okay only a couple minutes left and i do want to talk about this because i think it's important uh, you and i talked about uh, the recent shooting deaths in our community uh, some of the the drug trade and uh, crime issues um, last week the combined forces 
Texas Special Enforcement Unit came up here for four days and a absolutely shocking number of weapons. Uh, we're talking knives, hatchets, axes, pepper spray, pra- like, you know, everything under the sun that's been carried around the streets of Kamloops. Even the officers involved told me that they were surprised by the sheer number. Now, if this is a window into the street-level drug trade, um, concerned? Well, as I've said before, if you do drugs or if you deal drugs, you have a high risk of, of getting in trouble. And, uh, you know, for the normal Kamloops uh, resident, I don't think it's it's an issue, but this was a targeted action. Uh, the police know who are suspected as, as uh, 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 being drug traffic, traffickers and, and involved in the illegal drug trade. So they targeted those vehicles, those homes, those individuals, and this is what they found. So it is disturbing that there's that degree of uh, armaments out there. Uh, But this is a very dangerous and risky business. And, uh, you know, this is no different than than Surrey or Abbotsford. uh, And uh, we don't have that kind of uh, resource with the RCM police locally. But we will be bringing them in. And we intend to disrupt the drug trade as much as possible uh, by this kind of enforcement action. What do you do about some of these weapons? I mean, uh, if it's machine guns or stuff like that, you know, obviously there's there's a legal component. You can go in and say, okay, you either can't or shouldn't or by law cannot hold this firearm. In this case, we saw a slew of knives and hatchets and things. I mean, stuff you could go to Canadian Tire and buy on a dime, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we deal with that? I mean, these aren't, you know, quote-unquote illegal weapons, but yet in the wrong hands out there, they could definitely do some damage. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the police have, uh, you know, a challenge in terms of probable grounds that that, uh, you know, material would be used for an illegal purpose. So they have to be careful in terms of what they seize and, and where they seize it and who they whom they seize it from. But, uh, you know, we can assume with some surety that uh, people that are at three in the morning with a set of, uh, uh, you know, lock picking tools in a neighborhood where they don't live are probably up to no good. <laughs> lock picking tools are illegal, though. <laughs> Uh, Ken, only a minute left. Uh, you got the meeting this week. Uh, people are going to get their two cents in that list of 13 uh, projects on your supplemental budget list. Uh, in all reality, what, what weight does does what the public has to say in these meetings factor into the final decision? Well, yeah, that's at uh, 7 p.m. at the Valley First Lounge at the Sandman Centre on Thursday, and uh, we're hoping for a good turnout. We had a great turnout on the North Shore. Uh, we want people to come with their ideas about civic spending. Uh, we want them to weigh in on this list, and we also also want them to look beyond this particular year. We're trying to adjust people's thinking towards a, a five-year financial plan and our CFO, Kathy Humphrey's done a great job in terms of setting that out. So we want people to uh, really come and, and see what they want to spend uh, on in terms of municipal services over the next five years and, and beyond. So uh, those kinds of asks, things, I, I'm quite sure we're going to hear from pickleball players and we're going to hear from people who want more uh, ice time and we're going to hear from people who want uh, indoor soccer facilities and those kinds of things so those are the kind of asks that we expect to hear we just need to get those into the hopper so that we can uh, work up business cases for them in subsequent years well hopefully the pickleball people will be kinder on email than the park people were but anyway (laughs) (laughs) camelos american christian ken thank you sir Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about ride sharing. Coming next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. 
your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. The Federal Competition Bureau has made some recommendations on the ride-sharing front as they look at BC's attempts to introduce ride-sharing, perhaps by later this year. Pleasure to be joined on the phone now by the Associate Deputy Commissioner of Competition, Layla Wright. You guys put out a report uh, addressing the ride-sharing issue uh, here in British Columbia, uh, which uh, currently is not allowed, but uh, the goal is uh, by the current government to have it uh, by this fall. We'll see if they get there. Uh, but uh, your office had some recommendations on on how to approach this issue. Why don't you give me a rundown on how, on how you would like to see it tackled? made a number of recommendations. They really boil down to two big ones. The first one is that markets will often deliver the best outcomes on their own. And so instead of regulating things like caps on the numbers of drivers or geographic boundaries or uh, the price of fares, just let the markets decide um, and let supply and demand kind of dictate uh, who, how many drivers there are in what areas and what amount is charged for different fares. Um, and then the second big recommendation we made is that um, the best way to ensure the most competition is to level the playing field between traditional taxis and ride sharing. Um, and that's because when businesses have an equal opportunity to compete for customers, um, you'll get the really good things like lower prices, more innovation, and more convenience. One of the common uh, things you'll hear from, from government, both the current and the former in this province, and, and I'm sure from other governments as well when they deal with ride-sharing, are things like, um, you know, safety. So we need criminal record checks. We need to make sure the vehicles are safe, uh, that kind of thing. When we're talking about competition and, you know, making sure that things are done safely, how does all that factor in? Sure. So there are a number of important policy considerations like public safety that have to be taken into account. Um, there are cities across Canada that have opened the market up to ride sharing like Toronto and Ottawa and Winnipeg. Um, and it would be interesting to take a look at those cities and see whether those harms and concerns have actually come to fruition um, and whether there really does need to be regulation around them. Uh, one of the other things that this province wants to do, as I'm sure you're aware, Leila, is, is kind of look at sort of geographically constraining um, where certain drivers can operate and exactly how many and caps and, and that kind of thing. Is that the way it should be done in, in your office's perception or no? Uh, so from a competition perspective, uh, we would say there doesn't need to be regulation around that type of thing. Um, that's the the best way to decide how many drivers you have in a particular area is for the market to decide. And that way, if you have an area that has high demand, you'll have a lot of drivers in that area. And if you have an area that has small demand, you'll have less drivers. And that will just kind of naturally happen through the principles of supply and demand. Obviously, uh, your office's dedication is to ensuring competition. Um, other than sort of tabling these recommendations, is there any muscle you can flex here? I assume no, but uh, is there any way you can, you know, does, does your office putting this out there um, have a certain weight with the provincial government at, at any level or no? Well, we do hope that they'll take our advice into consideration as they move forward with their decision. Um, that is what it is. It's advice, um, and we're not the decision maker in this. 
How tricky is it to make sure the playing field is level in this particular case? Because we see this tug of war and to some degree turf protection uh, when it comes to taxis, uh, as we've seen play out in other jurisdictions as, they, as ride hailing comes in. Well, what we would say is instead of regulating more um, and, and regulating on top of the regulations that we already have, uh, the best way forward would, would be lighter regulation across the board. And so that would mean regulate no more than necessary and make sure that everyone is following the same rules. Uh, I'm not sure how other jurisdictions do it. Uh, BC is sort of an anomaly, one of the last places, I believe, in, in all of North America to not offer ride hailing. But uh, in, in your office's opinion, other provinces, other jurisdictions in the country, have they embraced competition to the degree you would like them to or no? Um, well, we do see a, a, other pro other cities in Canada that have embraced ride sharing, and we have seen some really clear benefits for consumers in jurisdictions that have um, opened up the market to competition. So the city of Ottawa, for example, put out a report a few years ago that showed that Uber prices are 36% less than taxis on average, and that passengers in Ottawa will wait 5 to 15 minutes for a taxi versus four minutes for an Uber. So some real clear benefits when you when you have the ride-sharing industry enter. Just out of curiosity, how did you guys sort of approach the issue as far as studying it to kind of determine uh, the recommendations you made? Um, we've been looking at this issue for a number of years now. Uh, we put out a lengthy white paper a few years ago and have kind of been following developments across the country since then. Interesting. Uh, my perception is, is sometimes change is, is very difficult. As I mentioned, there's these turf protections from existing industries who are looking to kind of protect their bottom line or their market edge. Um, how, I mean, does that factor at all into this thinking or no? Uh, we, we really just take the market as is and look at whether there are ways to increase competition in the market. Interesting. Um, does uh, does ride sharing, I mean, with surge pricing and Uber and things like that, uh, does the pricing always work out as being more competitive or no? Uh, I wouldn't be able to say definitively uh, yes to that, um, but we, we do have evidence that when you increase competition in the marketplace, then you get lower prices. Interesting. Uh, depending on what the province does, will you follow up uh, to kind of assess whatever um, circumstance or rules or regulations they do end up going with at the end of the day to kind of say, okay, you've done this, but we recommend tweaking this or doing that? Yeah, we do plan to continue following this industry, um, and we'd be happy to speak with the province if they have any questions. And, of course, if you want to use Uber, you, you can't fly out here and do it, so you'll probably stay where you are then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Layla, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Okay, thank you. That was the Associate Deputy Commissioner of the Federal Competition Bureau, Layla Wright. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. We'll discuss health care when we return on The Woodford Show right here on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Healthcare always a big topic, especially here in Kamloops. We're all aware of the uh, access to family care, access to doctors issue that's plagued this community, although there has been some strides to the positive lately on that front. We're going to talk about community health centres and what those are exactly. Joining me on the phone now is Ed Staples, chair of the BC Rural Health Network. Community health centres, uh, tell me a little bit about that and, and why this is sort of being bandied about as a possible solution uh, to some things that are plaguing different communities I know here in Kamloops 
relationships. We have a, very much a, a physician availability problem. A lot of people in this community don't have access to primary care. So um, what's, what's, what's with the, this particular concept and how could it help? Yeah, well, community health centers have been around for several decades now. Um, I think the first one was established in Winnipeg in 1926 in Canada. And uh, since then, it's uh, developed in many provinces across the country, in particular in Ontario and um, Nova Scotia. Um, and there, there is a growing interest across the country to establish um, and expand the CHC movement, the community health center movement, um, in particular in, in our province and also in the prairie provinces that are looking to expand these services. And um, the CHCs, um, the, one of the, the, the best ways to describe it, it is that it's a model of primary health care where, where patients can go and get a, a broad range, a wide range of, of services. Um, the the CHC model is really responsive to the needs of the community uh, because it's a uh, it's community centered, community governed. So the decisions about what is available through a CHC are made by the community for the community and through the community. And as a result, it's a very responsive model. Um, it makes it very adaptable, and especially in rural communities that are are constantly in a you know a process of change um, and sometimes very abrupt change can happen in rural communities that affect the the health of the communities um, it, it this model because of its responsiveness and adaptability is very well suited um, the other thing that is is important to note about CHCs is that it uh, research has shown that very reliable research has been done in, in places like Ontario that it's very responsive to the to the needs of the vulnerable populations, and um, by definition, uh, people living in rural um, communities are vulnerable. But rural communities also are um, uh, the characteristics of, of of people living in rural communities. They tend to have a higher rate of chronic illness, higher rates of of mental. Um, illness issues, um, and that as a result of that, the, uh, this model um, holds a lot of potential, it, it's, um, and, and we recognize that. The, the members of the BC Rural Health Network that, that I'm um, involved in uh, recognize that potential and are very, very excited about the fact that, that the Ministry of Health in our province is looking to uh, to expand and um, establish a policy that will enable rural communities to uh, take advantage of this model. So my understanding is that this particular model is, is well in use in other provinces, uh, for example, Ontario. What's the current status here in BC? Uh, obviously not extremely widespread, but are there any communities that currently have the model and, and how many? And if so, what, what, where would you like it to go past that? Yeah, and, uh, um, there, are, there are several in the province. Um, the, the, most of them are located in urban centers like uh, Vancouver and in Victoria. Um, I don't. I don't have an exact number, but I. I believe that in the BC Association of Community Health Centers, there, 
Um, there are roughly 25, maybe 30 members in that organization. Um, and there are other uh, community health centers across the province um, that uh, follow the model to a greater or lesser extent. In rural BC, there are several. And um, in Nelson, for example, they have a very robust um, community health center program there. Um, on Hornby Denman Island, there they have a, a CHC model. Uh, Bella Coola. There are other many other rural communities as well. Um, but f for the most part, the uh, what exists in rural, even though it might be similar to the CHC model, or it might have some of the attributes, the the. The, the rural communities that have developed their models have been done uh, more of, out of necessity than design. Um, and what, what we are encouraged and, and motivated about the, the CHC model in, in rural BC is that um, once the provincial government um, establishes the policy and begins to implement this, this policy, um, it really does have the potential to formalize the, the notion of, of a robust uh, community health center in their community that really serves the needs of the community. And, and that's what we're looking for from the ministry. Uh, now, as far as, uh, I mean, the concept itself seems like a fairly uh, interesting and intriguing idea. Um, I'm just kind of curious, uh, on the healthcare front, I mean, here in Kamloops, we're a 90 to 100,000 population. Uh, the satellite communities around Kamloops are much smaller, but, and I think this is a story across a broad section of BC, is we struggle to have enough doctors, have enough LPNs to uh, meet the need. So if you're going to have these centers, um, especially in rural parts of the province, how do you address the hiring of doctors and nurses and that kind of thing in order to staff them and make them work? Yeah, you ask a really important question, Shane, and I, I, I appreciate that. The, the, what you're describing in, in Kamloops is, um, could cover pretty much the entire province. Um, rural BC in particular suffers from a chronic shortage in healthcare professions, um, which makes it very difficult for for people living in rural to access the services, and, and, and I'd like to emphasize the word access, that, that describes the, the situation very well in, in our rural and remote areas of the province. And um, you've also mentioned, uh, you know, in particular doctors, there are approximately 1.5 million people in, in rural BC, um, depending on how you define that. Um, and um, roughly 25% of those people are unattached, meaning that they don't have a family doctor. The other challenge that, um, when it comes to access is travel. Many people living in rural and remote areas of the province have difficulty get actually getting to the services that, uh, that might be available. So it's a, it's a, a very serious problem that, uh, that we're dealing with not just um, urban, because um, urban has its own set of problems, but in a, a very unique set of problems in, uh, in rural as well. Now, how, you, how do you address that? The, the supply and demand um, concept, when you, when you apply that to, to healthcare professions, um, that, is a, that is a very serious problem. There are more 
uh, vacancies than there are people available to, to fill them. Traditionally, or at least in the last uh, several years since I've been involved in this, um, the, the way to answer that is by going out of province and very often internationally. Um, I personally have problems with that and I know many other people have um, agree with me that it's it's not appropriate it's it's not morally right that we we are going elsewhere and um, and drawing on other areas other communities and other areas of this world to solve our own problems so we need to find a an in-house solution and I think that comes from increasing the number of uh, uh, positions and places that are open to, to students uh, within our universities and our colleges to, to cover the shortfall. Um, it's going to take a lot of time for that solution to actually be effective, but um, like the old story, when's the best time to plant a tree? And that's now. Um, we, need to be, we need to be looking at solutions like this um, in the present and not, uh, not focusing on what, what it might look like in the future. Ed, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate that. That was Ed Staples, chair of the Rural BC Health Network. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, legislature and transparency with Sean Holman. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. In the aftermath of the uh, scandal rocking the legislature, of course, out of the Plekis report outlining lavish spending allegations against Craig James and Gary Lenz. They've since been suspended. Uh, the sergeant at arms and the clerk, uh, two special prosecutors appointed, and an RCMP investigation, among some other things going on. Uh, yesterday, some major movement on the transparency front in the legislature. A number of recommendations going to be universally adopted, according to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. Among those opening up the legislature to freedom of information request something my next guest knows a little something about pleasure to be joined by sean holman who's a journalism professor at mount royal university in calgary and no stranger to bc politics sean good morning and welcome thank you so much shane okay man uh i'll hand it off to you uh you have you've lobbied this for this for a long time and it it, it just it it shocks me still how slow government can move and how fast government can move when they're sufficiently prodded. Uh, all of a sudden, in the space of an hour, we went from a pipe dream on the FOI front to we're doing it, we're opening up the legislature. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a very positive move, Shane, and I give full credit to the three independent legislative officers who pushed for this change to have the legislature brought under the Freedom of Information Act to have it subject to Freedom of Information requests. So full credit to them. I do think that the news media really needs to step up in supporting this particular measure. For the most part, they've been fairly silent, and I get why that is. I think a lot of members of the news media don't want to be seen as biased on this particular issue, don't want to be seen as being advocates or lobbyists. But we really are representatives of the public chain. We really are the people who are most interested or should be most interested in getting this kind of access. And I think it's important as the government moves towards implementation of this measure that the gallery really step up 
be specific about what is needed and get on board uh, with actually supporting this pretty powerful move on the part of the government. Yeah, and we'll dive into sort of your thoughts on the media coverage of the Plekis report, etc., in, in a minute or two here. Uh, I do want to ask you, though, uh, on the Freedom of Information request front, uh, great news. Obviously, welcome that uh, that uh, Mike Farnworth has said we're doing this. But my next thought immediately afterwards is uh, the devil's in the details. We haven't seen anything finite. We don't know how it's going to work. We don't know what we can FOI, what we can't FOI, whether it's blanket, whether it's not. Uh, your thoughts on that front? Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think you're really right to be raising that point. Uh, What we'll be looking to pay attention to from this point onward is what is going to be excluded uh, in terms of freedom of information requests to the Legislative Assembly. We've already sort of got some idea about what that could be, some talk that the caucuses will probably be excluded from that, and we would actually expect that. Um, But I think it'll be also interesting to see whether or not we'll be able to request historic records from the legislature. How far will this access go back? Will we actually be able to see what has been going on in those offices um, before uh, this particular change is enacted, uh, or are we just going to be able to access the stuff uh, on an ongoing basis, on a future basis? So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens when it comes to that change. Mike Farnworth also adds, Sean, that uh, more changes are coming, saying this is a minimum level of moves, uh, although it is obviously a major move in and of itself, but um, do we end here? Is it victory? What else do we need to do on this front to get transparency in a building that's obviously in desperate need of it? Yeah, I think we need to do actually a lot more. Um, Right now, the Speaker of the Legislature has the power to really frustrate journalists who are looking into what is going on at the Legislative Assembly. Uh, The Speaker has the power to bar people from the precincts. Uh, and also has the power to determine who can and can't use censored footage. Both of those are potentially big frustrations uh, for journalists who are asking uncomfortable questions about what is going on at the assembly. So I really think that that, that also needs to be uh, taken a look into. And, of course, we would also want to see some more proactive disclosure around some of the legislative uh, spending uh, that we've been seeing that has caused this controversy in the past. So I think that's what we'll we'll sort of want to actually be looking for in the future. Well, I dare say we've learned more about the office of the Speaker in the last year and a half in this province than we have in the previous uh, several decades, uh, considering the formation of the government and on to this particular controversy. Uh, It certainly grabbed a lot of headlines, but you have an interesting take on the overall coverage. Uh, What's your beef with the way it's been covered? Yeah, I think overall, um, if you sort of take a look at the coverage, and I should be clear, this is not everyone's coverage uh, of this particular spending scandal. What we have seen is the political news media seem to go out of their way uh, to give the benefit of the doubt to Craig James and seem to also cast a shadow over uh, Plekis' allegations. And, of course, we want to be really appreciative of the fact, uh, Shane, that we don't know how this particular scandal is going and how this controversy is going to end. Um, But I think there were some blind spots in the coverage, and that has to do with, in part, 
the reporting ideology of the press gallery, or at least some members within the press gallery. And I think it's easy to criticize the press gallery as being left or right. I don't think that's particularly accurate, because the truth is it's a lot more complex. In the main, uh, a lot of the political news media in this province are establishmentarians. They favor the existing power structures within the province. And they also worship at something that some media theorists, or at least one media theorist, has called the Church of the Savvy. In other words, they have a tendency to favor those people they see as savvy over radicals and idealists. And I think that played out in this coverage. James is a member of the establishment. Plekis definitely was not savvy um, and definitely was not a member of the establishment. And I think that's why the coverage kind of went the way it did. So I think this is an opportunity uh, for members of the political news media in British Columbia to reflect um, on that tendency, on that bias, um, and I'm hoping to see that happen. I was struck uh, about the pendulum swing, uh, how Daryl, and to be fair, I think Daryl Plekis brought uh, a fair amount of it on himself by the way he was behaving uh, in in how he proceeded in some of the actions he took. But uh, in the space of the Plekis report, the pendulum swung completely the other way. He went from zero to hero uh, and was was lauded to a degree that I didn't think was um, fair or or in the context of what was going on, and maybe even right. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the media needs to be asking questions of everyone. Um, they need to be taking a critical lens to everyone, and I think that's what we really haven't seen in this particular circumstance. It should have been more balanced than it was. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, Plekis did bring some of this on himself. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of oxygen when it came to covering the allegations against James, given the fact that we didn't know a lot about them initially. Um, so the media went where the oxygen was, and that was in some of Plekis' missteps. So, uh, you know, again, I, I think this is really an opportunity for the media to have some self-reflection, uh, some critical thought about how they handled the case, um, because we have seen this kind of blind spot pop up before Shane, um, and I think it hurts the gallery, and I don't think that's good for British Columbia. All right. Sean, we're out of time, but it's always a pleasure to chat. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shane. There we go. That's Sean Holman. As I mentioned, no stranger to BC politics. Uh, he has since moved out of province and is now a journalism professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, had some interesting things to say there. My thanks to my guests, including Sean, on the show today. That brings an end to the Woodford Show for this Wednesday. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.